following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Well, good morning, everyone. It is really good to gather together today and to to be together as the body of Christ. We get to open up our Bibles. Uh, Please find Romans chapter 10 in your Bibles. What a privilege we have. As the old song goes, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our great hope is the all-sufficiency of Christ, the sovereign Savior. He is the only way to be saved. Every believer knows it. He's the only way to be saved. We believe what the Bible teaches about him, that Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins, shedding his blood, that he was buried, and that he rose from the third day. On the third day, rose from the grave. He appeared to many. He ascended to the Father and promised to return with blessing for those who believe and with judgment for those who don't. And today, we're going to explore something that is true about every believer to one degree or another, and it's this, that when you believe those truths, you want those who are currently rejecting Christ to be saved. You want them to come to know Christ, and it becomes the passion of your heart, and you even pray to God that it would happen. And so today, we're going to explore this heart desire for the lost to be saved, and God-dependent prayer for their salvation. But we're going to see two roadblocks that are huge in the way of those who are rejecting Christ. We're going to see uh, misguided zeal and arrogant pride. But what I want to point out to you is that the most important thing we're going to see today is that Jesus Christ is all-sufficient. He is the all-sufficient Savior. And so... I want to invite you, if you are able, to please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And it is a privilege to to read the word of God and to hear the word of God. And we believe that the Bible is authoritative. We believe that it's binding on our consciences, that if God says it, we need to obey it. So here's what it says. Brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness To everyone who believes. And Lord, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for life. Thank you that we could be here together, gathered together as a church body. The privilege of having fellowship with one another and and greeting one another and and praying and singing together and and then... in unity, opening up our Bibles together. And we don't want to take that for granted, Lord. We, our desire is that you would work in our hearts that which is pleasing to you. 
all for your glory. And so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. So these four verses are, 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 are really sweet. They're just sweet. They're, it starts a lot like chapter 9. Romans 10 starts a lot like Romans chapter 9. But it shows the loving evangelistic zeal, desire of believers for people who don't know Christ to come to know Christ. And it shows their prayer for the salvation of these who are rejecting Christ. But it also shows this misguided zeal. It shows this ignorant pride. But most of all, it shows Christ's all-sufficiency. Where our hope is, is founded on the bedrock, the truth of the gospel. Last time we were in Romans chapter 9, we were finishing up that chapter, and it, we left off with the Jews stumbling over Christ. A heartbreaking thing. And Paul, at the end of chapter 9, he, he summarizes chapter 9 with a startling conclusion, a, a shocking twist, really, because he said the Gentiles who didn't seek to be right with God received it by faith. And that Israel, which was working really hard and pursuing being right with God by works instead of faith, missed out. And they stumbled over Christ. And we saw these realities about the sovereignty of God and salvation and human responsibility. And we saw why believers are saved. It's because they receive the gift of faith from God. And they believe. And we saw why unbelievers are unsaved. They refuse salvation in Christ. They refuse God's terms in the gospel. And then we saw that Christ is the only way to be saved and that he will be either a stumbling stone or a cornerstone in your life. And we saw some things from it. There's some takeaways, really, of, that we need to cling to the truth of the, of, the, of the gospel and reject pagan lies. And that one bit of unsound doctrine is more destructive than a thousand pagan lies. And we ought not to stumble over Christ and know that man-centered ways all fail. And that it taints whatever's happening. And we saw that. And we saw that we need to not lock on to wrong ideas about God. We need to guard the treasure. We need to guard our minds with the truth. And we saw that if you're saved, it's because God did it because he saved you, it's because of his choice of you, but that if you're not saved, it's due to your rejection of Christ. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it is the ordination of God that brings anyone in, and it is man's deliberate refusal and rejection that keeps him out. And so we saw chapter nine, and chapter nine was majoring on God's sovereignty in salvation, and here in chapter 10, it's majoring on human responses to the gospel. You can go through the whole Bible, and you can see that every time it is speaking of the, the sovereignty of God in saving people, very close by, you will see human responsibility for their own sin and their own rejection of the Messiah. So what we see in these first four verses, four things. It really goes verse by verse. The first thing is Paul's loving desire. We'll look at that first. And then we'll see these two roadblocks. Verse 2, the Jews' misguided zeal. 
And then verse 3, the Jews' ignorant rejection. And then we'll see in verse 4, Christ's total sufficiency. And we'll just go right through those four verses and see those things. So I want you to first focus with me on verse 1. Now look at verse 1 with me. We're seeing Paul's loving desire. He begins verse 1 and says, brothers. Now this doesn't mean that Paul is only speaking to the men. It's plural for brothers and sisters. He's saying, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm about to say something very important. You'll notice in other times in the New Testament, Paul will, will say this, brothers or brethren, and it, it's used to emphasize what he's about to say to the church. And he's speaking to the church, and he's saying that he has a heart desire. So he's sharing his desire with the church. Now this desire he has is something he really wants. It's directed at something that would cause great happiness to him, and, and, and it speaks of the, of the kindness of God and the favor of God and what's pleasing to God and acceptable to God and what would, God would approve of. So he's wanting something that is really, really good. And so he's saying, I'm going to tell you about what the best outcome could be. And so he says, my heart's desire. Now you think about your heart's desires for a moment. Just think about it. When you're committed to something really strongly, it affects your will. You want to do something, and that affects your emotions. You're, you're emotive about it. Like it, it means something to you, right? And, it, and you're, 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 you feel strongly about it. So think about Paul and, and saying that he has a great desire. Uh, he used to be as blind as the ones he's praying for. He knows that their works are never going to get them to God. He should know better than anyone. He lived that so he can give the testimony of that. And he knows that they have rejected the source of true righteousness. They have rejected Jesus Christ. They've rejected faith in Christ. And so he knows they're in very grave danger. He knows that they're in a lot of trouble eternally in terms of their spiritual life. And so he says, my heart's desire and I want you to notice something. He wanted something good for his opponents. Those that were messing him up, that were beating him up, that were waiting in Jerusalem for him to oppose his preaching, he wanted something good for them. I think we can learn something there, to bless and not curse. He wanted something good for his opponents, and so he says, I have this desire, and I'm praying about it. Literally, he says, I'm praying for them. He says, my, God, my prayer to God for them. So four means there was a purpose, and, and, and the hope he has is that the stumbling they're doing over Jesus isn't permanent. He's speaking in real time. He's saying, these are people whose hearts are still beating, who there's still hope for, humanly speaking. Like, he's been preaching the gospel, and they've been rejecting it, but only God knows who's going to get saved, and so there's still a chance with these folks. And he's praying for their salvation. He makes it really clear. This is how he starts off. I love it. It's just a loving heart's desire. You have a loving heart's desire for many things, uh, for good for people, to bless them. That they, if, for, if you're a believer and you have Christian friends, you want your Christian friends to be growing in Christ. If you're a believer and you don't have Christian, and you have friends that aren't Christians, you're like, I really want them to be saved. So you want something good for them. You want God's blessing for them. And so he says, I'm praying to God about it. And it's an interesting word he uses here for prayer. It's not your just general word for prayer. What it means is it's an urgent request. 
It's the word for an urgent request to meet a need, that you know of something that's a really dire need, and so you're going to God and, and, and really crying out to God about it. In fact, in, in Philippians 4, when, when Paul is talking about uh, be anxious for nothing, you know, stop fretting, uh, but in everything by prayer, well, that word is actually from a word that means worship. It's not the word here in Romans 10. It says, but, everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, that's the word in Romans 10. 10. It means a definite request where you're crying out for needs and you're doing it with thanksgiving, not with rebellion, but you're making your request known to God. You're pouring your heart out to God. Same word is used of Jesus in Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayer and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. We know Jesus went to the cross. This is the purpose for him coming to earth. It's the same word that's used in James chapter 5, which says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. So Paul is pouring his heart out for people he cared deeply about. And he's praying that they would be saved. I love this. Chapter 9 started this way, but chapter 9's emphasis was on God's freedom to choose who will be saved. And now it's balanced here with this urgent need for prayer that those rejecting the gospel would turn from their sins, believe in Jesus, and receive salvation. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, um, it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And Paul is knowing that, and he's saying those that are alive right now that are rejecting Christ, they are facing judgment and the wrath of God against their sin. I want them to be saved. You know how it feels. If you're a Christian, you know exactly how this feels, how your heart just breaks over those who reject Christ. It brings you to tears. It brings you to deep anguish of your soul. Sometimes you might lie awake at night thinking about your loved ones or your friends or even, even an opponent of yours or an enemy of yours, but that you really want them to be saved so they'll treat you nicer and be saved. <laughs> he, he wants them to escape the penalty of sin. He, 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 he wants them to be delivered from slavery to sin. He knows they're on the way to destruction. He wants them saved. Paul's given his heart. He's given his desire of his heart. Loving zeal for souls to be saved. We should have that kind of zeal. But there's a, there's a roadblock in a lot of hearts towards that kind of zeal. Sometimes it's in my heart. It might be in your heart sometimes too. Because where there's little love, there's little evangelism. Um, here's the kind of things you don't want in your life if you're a Christian. You, you don't want unreconciled relationships. No one does. You don't want animosity towards people. You don't want gossip and slander. You don't want to have unloving attitudes. But you find that sometimes you're the cause of those things, and I'm sometimes the cause of those things. And what, what, what happens is you realize in Christ that repentance is necessary, right? And reconciliation is necessary. And sometimes we don't take those steps, and we kind of gloss over things, and our heart becomes hard towards people. And when there's little love, there's little evangelism and little discipleship. God's kindness leads us to repentance. You know, I, I think about almost every counseling situation that I have been in where there's two people that are at odds, 
it, it's always the same answer. You know, it's always if, if they would just repent of their sins and reconcile, they would work this out. They just would. And so what, what happens is if we want to respond to God's love and care in our hearts as believers, we have to love Jesus more than anything, right? But here's, there's another rub here. Think about what you think about the most, okay? And maybe your mind's been preoccupied with things, and I don't want to make you feel too bad because now you're thinking about it now, but if you're preoccupied with it, you're already thinking about it. So I'm just kind of pointing out what you were already thinking about, okay? I know what happens when you're hearing a sermon. I know, I know how I am when I'm hearing a sermon. Sometimes I'm thinking about other things, but let's just think about the thing you're thinking about all the time. And, and maybe you think about that more than about Jesus. Then that's an idol in your heart. And let's just say it's, it's not a good thing. It's, it's, a, it's a relationship that's messed up and you really want it to be better, but it's just taking up and consuming all your energy and maybe even planning out ways to you know, either make it right or get back to, at someone, right? You know how we are. And what happens is that becomes an idol in your heart that raises up against the knowledge of God. It, ra- it raises up against your love for Christ. And what happens is when you're there, when you're in that mode, when I'm in that mode, I'm not really thinking about sharing Christ with people, right? I'm not really thinking about, wow, I really want that person to be saved. Or, and I'm not even thinking that much about, I really want that person to grow in Christ. I'm just kind of focused on myself too much, right? Well, Proverbs 4.23 will be helpful to us at this point. Watch over your heart with all diligence. From it flow the springs of life. That's a good one. In fact, Puritan John Flavel said this, the heart of man is his worst part before it's regenerated and the best afterwards. It is the seat of principles and the foundation of actions. The eye of God is and the eye of the Christian ought to be principally fixed upon it. And the idea is that God's eye is on your heart and your eye should be on your heart too. You should be wanting to cling to what is good and right and true. You should be following Micah 6.8, right? To do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God. As far as possible, uh, seek peace with everyone, as Romans 12 says. And then what what you'll notice is when you're doing that, your heart is free to desire and pray for other people's salvation. And I want you to notice something that Paul is modeling here for the church. And maybe it's something you don't think about too often, and maybe you just you know, pray, but you don't share it with anyone that you're praying. Paul is modeling for us that a Christian's heart desire should be known by the church and brought to God. That the people that you are close with, the people in your, in your group, so the people that you're doing life with, the people in your family, and the people that are in your friend group, they should know your heart's desires, and, and they they should know that you're praying about it. Paul models this for the church. He's showing us how it's done. He's praying for those currently rejecting Christ. And he's telling the church that he does it. He's telling the church what his heart's desire is. And we know that what he's doing is biblical. If you ever wonder, is it, is it okay to pray for people to come to faith in Christ? Yes, it's biblical. This verse teaches that. As so does 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 1 through 6. Paul said this, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, so all kinds of prayer to God, be made for all people. 
for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, if you stop there, you'd think, oh, you're just praying that your, your ungodly leaders will not make life too hard on you. Now, of course, we want that to happen. But that would be a stunted view. That is a byproduct. But go on in the verses. This is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. We're to be praying for their salvation first and foremost. And hopefully they get saved and then, you know, treat people better. And a lot of people will say, well, this is only for the evangelists, those who are gifted as evangelists, that special class. God does gift certain people very clearly as evangelists. But this is for every believer. Every believer can emulate what Paul is doing, preaching the gospel and praying for the salvation of others, proclaiming the gospel. Whatever you're gifting, Faithfully do the work of evangelists. Uh, your whole life as a Christian really would be gathered around two things. Evangelism and discipleship. Helping people come to know Christ, helping people grow in Christ. There you have it, how simple. How simple is that? So where can you do this? Well, first place to start that a lot of people forget about is preach the gospel in your own heart. To yourself. Remind yourself of the truth of the gospel. And guess what? When I'm reminding myself of the truth of the gospel, I want to share Christ with people more and help Christians grow more. My attitude just gets better when I'm preaching my, the gospel to my own heart, reminding myself of what Jesus did and what he's doing. And then proclaim the gospel in your own home with those God has given you to do life with most closely. And then Proclaim the gospel in the household of God. Remember what Paul, what Paul said, I am eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. He's talking to Christians. And then resolve it to give the gospel, share the gospel lovingly on any hemisphere you find your feet. We're gonna get into the, end, the rest of uh, Romans 9 soon and how beautiful on, on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Just think, God, wherever you put me in the whole wide world, I'm gonna... Share Christ with people and help Christians grow. That's a pretty sweet thing that we get to do. And God has not left us to do this on our own. Uh, you gotta root your heart's desires uh, through God first. This is what Paul is teaching us. Let God be the arbiter of your affections. He says, I have this desire and I'm praying to God about it. Just remember what you're doing when you pray. You are acknowledging the sovereignty of God, that only he can save people, that salvation is a sovereign act of God, so Lord, please save them. And just know it's your responsibility to pray, and it's your privilege to pray. If you're a Christian, you have access to God through the blood of Christ, through faith in Christ. But let your heart's desires lead to dependent prayer and focused on the salvation of the lost and, and the growth of believers. And, and, and here's what happens when you're focusing on the salvation of the lost. You want believers to grow too. Think about what Paul said about sanctification. My children with whom I am in travail until Christ is formed in you. The process of growth, the struggle. We need to pray. You know what we need to pray first and foremost? We need to pray knowing something, that, that God 
opened your heart to the gospel, so it works. You don't have to worry about, like, does it work or not? Like, should I really do this? Does it really work? Yeah, God opened your heart to the gospel, so it works. Pray knowing that God is sovereign. Pray knowing that God changes your heart when you pray, and pray earnestly and fervently and continually. And just remember this. This is something we always have to remember. This is very important. If, if there's something for which you're praying that isn't the promise of God, but is a really good thing, keep praying for it. But don't set your heart too heavy on it. Because what might happen is you might say, well, I'm claiming that person for Christ. They're going to become a, a Christian. And if they don't believe, you're going to be like, well, God didn't come through. That's a, 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 a twisted view of what God does. Okay, there's plenty of things in life that are really good things that you need to pray for that are God-honoring desires, but they're not promised. So you can't just claim it and say, God's going to give it to me. If you're, if you're, if you're waiting for something in your life, and maybe it's someone in your life that you love dearly and you want them to come to Christ, maybe it's something else, something really good. Something that God loves, something that is just wonderful that you're hoping happens in your life. Don't set your heart too heavy upon it. Just pour your heart out to God about it. You see what I'm saying? Pour your heart to God about the thing. He knows what he's going to give. He knows what he's going to withhold in your life to make you more like Christ. And just praise him for who he is and what he does and what he's going to do. Say, Lord, whatever you bring in my life, I'm going to receive it from your hand as a gracious gift. Pour out your heart's desire to God. Perhaps he would save some that you are praying for. This passage has been reminding me this week to pray for the salvation of the lost. It's so easy to stop praying for the salvation of the lost and just going out and trying to reach the lost. If it's going to happen, it's because God's going to do it. What's going to happen as you, as you proclaim the gospel to the lost, God's going to call them outwardly by your gospel proclamation, but if they're going to get saved, they're going to have an inward calling of God, inwardly by the Spirit, secretly by the Spirit, you can't see it, and everyone appointed to eternal life will believe. And everyone must hear. First Corinthians, uh, excuse me, for, uh, Romans chapter 10, you know what it shows us? The passion of gospel preaching. It just gives us the absolute passion of gospel preaching. Can't wait till we get further on in the, in, the, in the chapter. Paul went to God with the need, and he took every gospel opportunity. That's what we need to do. Okay, so that expresses Paul's loving desire, verse 1. Now let's move on, because we're going to get into two roadblocks that keep people from coming to faith in Christ. And the first, in verse 2, is the Jews' misguided zeal. And it's easy for anyone to have misguided zeal. But he starts by telling, you know, why does he have a hope for Israel's salvation? Why does it run so deep? Verse 2, look at verse 2. For I bear them witness. I bear them witness. He's saying, I testify about them. I'm going to say something good about them right now. That they have a zeal for God. They have a zeal for God. That's what he's saying about them. Now, Think about the Jews, they were as religious as you can get. They fastidiously kept the law of Moses, and here's where they went off the rails. They devised hundreds of extra laws that God did not give, and it was, it was like this. Well, God said, keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. They said, well, that's not enough. 
we got to make rules about how far you can walk on the Sabbath and what constitutes work on the Sabbath. And they added all sorts of things in and forced people to do it that God hadn't said to do. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 15, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Paul even indicted himself before he became a Christian. Here's, what he, here's how he would talk about himself before he became a Christian. Philippians 3, he says, I would have confidence in my flesh. I, I have reason to do it. If anyone is going to do it, I would have more reason to have confidence in my own deeds. Uh, I was circumcised the eighth day. He didn't do that. Someone else did that for him. Uh, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. And he's saying, look, I had this perfect spiritual resume that all the Jews would have loved. But what we notice from that is that zeal can turn on you and really mess you up. Taken too far, it's bad. A.T. Robertson was, was doing a word study on this word zeal. and In the Greek, it's zealos. So it's kind of an easy word, right? But it means warmth. It means warmth. It means something good, okay? Some heat is being generated. But as soon as it goes to a bad cause, as soon as there is a bad motive, now it's talking about jealousy and envy and, and rivalry. It can turn on you. And, and, and here he is. He's, he's yearning for the salvation of his brethren that are rejecting the gospel in real time, and, and he knows they agree on something. That, that it's, it's good to spend your time serving God. Psalm 100, verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Um, they had this zeal, this extraordinary devotion to God. The only problem was it wasn't their energy. It was the way it was pointed, because it was pointed at themselves. And it was not according to knowledge. Again, look at verse 2, not according to knowledge. They had a zeal, but not according to knowledge. And this is not the normal word for knowledge. Uh, the normal word is gnosis, this is epigenosis. This is a fullness of knowledge. This is where you experience the facts that you know. Uh, this is in contrast to gnosis. Epigenosis is complete knowledge, thorough knowledge, accurate knowledge, intimate knowledge, personal knowledge, experiential knowledge. What he's saying is the Jews lacked epigenosis. They, knowledge, they, they didn't have true knowledge of the gospel, therefore they didn't have true appreciation for the gospel. What did Paul say about knowledge? First Corinthians 8.1, he said, knowledge makes arrogant, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And plenty of people say, oh, we shouldn't have knowledge because you just need to have love. That's twisting that scripture. So if you have knowledge without zeal, it's just dead orthodoxy. Like you know all these things, but you're not loving the Lord with your heart. So that's not good. But what about zeal without knowledge that they had here? That leads to fanaticism, some of which masquerades as Christianity in our day. If you have zeal minus knowledge, that leads to pagan mysticism. If you have zeal minus knowledge, that leads to sentimentality. And we sentiment, sentiment oh, I can't even say the word now. <laughs> After, this is my third time trying to say this word. I said it right the first two services, but you know, it happens sometimes. We sentimentalize the gospel. Why do I even want to say that word, right? Here's what we do with the gospel. We, 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 we uh, reduce it to good feelings. We just have really good feelings, warm fuzzies about Jesus. Uh, we have mere enthusiasm. 
as if enthusiasm can get you to heaven. We love phrases like, just love Jesus and forget about everything else. Or people will say, I'm so in love with Jesus. Now, you do need to love Jesus. You need to love Jesus first and foremost, but that's not the end of the road. It means then you love him, so you're going to do what he says. He said that. If you love me, you'll do what I say. But we almost romanticize the love between God and us. And zeal without knowledge characterizes many today. Now, there's also something else. Uh, Others have limited zeal. They have a a kind of a closed-off, compartmentalized zeal. They might say, well, it's all about mercy ministry, and the gospel doesn't matter. Or it's all about caring for the poor, and the gospel doesn't matter. It's all about my good works, but the gospel doesn't matter. And if you divorce those from the gospel, you're in trouble, because for a Christian, zeal apart from the gospel is at its base, love for yourself and having others see you as the doer of the good thing. There are even some who will say of unbelievers, we've all done this, I've done this, you say like of Muslims and Jews and those who haven't heard, and you love them, you care about them, you know they don't believe the gospel, but then we'll say things like this, and I've done it, I've done it. But they're so sincere. They're so sincere. Well, this verse goes against that. Sincerity is not the measure of whether you're saved or not. It is good to be sincere. But faith based on the knowledge of Christ saves you. Uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, you, they say they believe in Jesus. You say, oh, they're so, they're so sincere. Oh, they have a false Jesus. Uh, they have a false gospel. What does Galatians 1 say about those preaching a false Jesus and having a false gospel? You're going to get cursed. S. Lewis Johnson said, sincerity is no substitute for truth. You need the truth and you need to be sincere. We're supposed to preach the gospel to unbelievers. Romans 1, he even says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to the believers. Why would, he, why would the Apostle Paul say he wants to preach the gospel to believers? I think part of the reason why is it's so easy for believers to go astray and go off the reservation and swerve. There are many Christian groups, churches and individuals that are misguided and they start off on the right foot but somehow they get deceived by false teaching. They get led astray. We have to boldly preach the the truth of the word of God. We are called to rightly divide or rightly handle the word of truth. To cut it straight, literally 2 Timothy 2.15 is talking about cutting a straight furrow or or building a straight road. But what happens is, you know, as you're meeting with people, if you're a believer and and you've been a believer for a while, you're meeting with people and you're you're helping people grow and you're going to run into Christians that literally come to you with a big, big ball of uh, twisted rope. And it's all their beliefs, and you're like, well, you got, you, got quite, you, got, you got quite the knot going on there because they've believed things that aren't true, and what happens is you do a lot of untwisting of Scripture with them. That's good. It's good for their soul. It's good to help people untwist bad ideas so that people can be saved and built up in the faith and rescued from false teachings and, and free to serve Christ. My my prayer for Christ's church, wherever it gathers, on this whole globe, and especially the pulpits where people stand up with Bibles, that they, by the grace of God, would be be error-free zones. And we're going to stumble, we're going to say things, we can't pronounce our words sometimes, or we just say things that maybe we missed and we said something wrong. You test it by the word of God. So what does the Bible really say? I was talking to someone the other day and they said, well, you know, I'm not one of those people that believes the Bible literally. Literally. 
And I thought to myself, you literally don't believe the Bible. Now here in this context that we are seeing in Romans 10, Paul has a very solid biblical worldview. Uh, Truth is paramount to him. Uh, He believes and trusts what conforms to reality, and he knows that God defines what is reality. And if it's not in accordance with the authoritative word of God, he's going to reject it because it's not acceptable to God. We should do the same thing. And in this context, those that were alive right then and rejecting the gospel, rejecting Christ, weren't like good, sincere people that just took a wrong turn. They had swerved wildly from the truth and went far off the reservation. And at the core, is what we're going to see in verse 3, they were diametrically opposed to God and they hated Christ. Look with me at verse 3. Because we've seen Paul's loving desire. And then we see a big roadblock, misguided zeal, verse 2. But then we see an even bigger roadblock right behind that one in verse 3, the Jews' ignorant pride. Look at verse 3. He says, for being ignorant, not knowing. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Ignorance here, literally in the word ignorance, you have the word ignore. And this means a lack of knowledge. But in this context, it's not because the knowledge wasn't made available. People were ignoring the truth that was realized there. Uh, They chose not to see it or hear it. They chose to overlook what was clearly made known to them. Christians, don't fall to this error where you like, I see it, I I, I get it, but I'm not going to believe it. The only cure, by the way, for for ignorance in a Christian's life is, is time in the word of God and seeking the Lord and having other Christians help you to know the will of God in the word of God. Like, if, if you're married, you gotta get into the word of God with your spouse, by yourself and with your spouse. And, and if you got kids, you gotta teach your kids the word of God in their home. And then Sunday school and Awana and other things will be, and, and youth group will be supplementary to what you do every day. That's your calling. If you're young, if you're a, a student or a, a child, just learn the Bible. Feed yourself the Bible and, and keep a journal from an early age. I've been, I kept a journal from a year after I got saved. So 1983, and I can go back in those journals and when I'm you know, downcast or discouraged, I can go back and read what God was doing in my life. For all of us, if we want to have something to share with others, we need to know the truth and live the truth and think the truth and, and not neglect the word of God. Proverbs 13, 13, whoever neglects the word will be in debt to it. Never swerve from the truth. Know this, a true knowledge of God leads to a truly changed life. And false knowledge leads to a deceived heart. What keeps many from Christ, and especially in this context, is a desire to exalt themselves rather than dying to self. Uh, They refuse, as as Isaiah said, yield now and be at peace with God. And they're going to be held responsible because they should have known better. So Paul is talking about people who should have known better. Here's what he says. Again, look at verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God... And seeking, that's in the present participle, it it means a continual search. They're on a continual hunt for what? Seeking to establish their own righteousness. So establish means to build a monument, and it's their own, it's their possession, it's their property, it's not to the glory of God, it's to themselves, so it's not a lack of info They desire to erect their own righteousness. And therefore, he says, they did not submit. They didn't obey. They weren't putting themselves in subjection to or brought under the control of God's righteousness. This is like the Tower of Babel. 
This is Babel-like glory-seeking for self-aggrandizement. This is Genesis 11:4. Let us build for ourselves a city that reaches to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Let's get famous. And so what he's finding us, what he's telling us, excuse me, that we find is that the problem with their ignorance is that it had this willful, guilty, prideful edge to it. Willful pride, the willful ignorance of humans that Romans 121 told us about. Those who knew God but did not glorify or thank him as God but exchanged the truth of God for a lie, it was going to lead to disaster. It's willful rejection, a hardened heart. They won't listen to the word. They're tossed by every wind and wave of doctrine. They're not grounded in the word. They, they, they fall for Anything because they know nothing. They're, they're like a person who says no to vegetables and protein all the time. And they say, no, give me sugar and snacks. And they become malnourished and sickly. Uh, you say no to the good stuff often enough, uh, you're only going to want junk food. You push the truth away, it's the worst thing for your soul. You're not going to make progress, you'll fall away. And the only remedy is repentance and faith. This is the way it is. And so these are two roadblocks. Misguided zeal and ignorant pride, and you've got Paul's loving desire. He's like, I'm praying for them to be saved. Well, look at verse 4. This is the most important aspect of this passage. Verse 4, Christ's total sufficiency. Christ's total sufficiency, verse 4. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, the, the, the word order here in the Greek is very interesting. It literally is the end of the law is Christ. Now, how is Christ the end of the law for righteousness? There's three different ways you can take it, and actually all of them are accurate, but one fits the context the best. So they're all biblically accurate. The first is to say that Christ is the aim of the law, the goal, that which, to which the law leads. The, the law led Paul to Christ. Galatians 3.24, the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we would be justified, declared righteous by God through faith. Second way you can take it is it's, he's the fulfillment of the law. Christ fulfilled the law. Jesus said that in Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. The third way you can take this is he's the termination of the law. He's the ending of the law. Now remember what it says, the, the, the end of the law for righteousness. So termination actually fits the context here, but you have to finish the sentence. Termination of the law for righteousness. What it means is Christ is the end of you working for your salvation. Belief in Christ brings to the end a sinner's futile quest for righteousness through the imperfect attempts to fulfill the law. This is what Paul said in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch on the Sabbath day, Acts chapter 13. He said, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed, literally justified, declared righteous, from all the things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. What the law can't do, Jesus does. Christ is the end of you trying to work for your salvation. Praise God for that. John Calvin said this, the law holds everyone under its curse. From the law, therefore, it is useless to seek a blessing. In this sense, law and gospel are irre irreconcilable. Just as the law demands work, the gospel requires only 
that men shall bring faith in order to receive the grace of God. The peculiar office of the law is to summon consciences to the judgment seat of God. He said Moses had no other intention than to invite all people to go straight to Christ. The purpose of the law was to drive us to Christ, that we would come to the end of ourselves and the end of our attempts to work our way to God. Luther put it this way, the law always accuses. Christ is the goal. It demonstrates the need for for his atoning, reconciling, transforming death. Paul said in Galatians 2.21, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ ended the law as a way of righteousness. No, a lot of people will say, well, then I can break the Ten Commandments? No. (laughs) No, because you get saved by Jesus, you want to please God. And so you're not going to lie, cheat, and steal, or commit adultery. You're going to want to do what God wants you to do, to express your gratitude to him who saved you by grace. Once you've been saved by grace, you just go, I love the Lord. I want to please him. Uh, Not to be accepted, but because I'm part of the family. But what happened with the Jews, and he's speaking about them in real time, remember, he still wants them to get saved. In rejecting Christ, they rejected the way of salvation that God put out to all people. God has one way, by grace through faith in Christ. Christ is all sufficient. He is the only savior. What he does matters supremely. The cross, substitution, Salvation, regeneration, transformation, reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, Paul says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Christ is the answer. I know we have this tendency to start thinking, well, everyone knows that. Nobody's really working for their own salvation. Let me just put it to you this way. All the unbelievers that God has put in your life, they have no clue. They're working for their own salvation. But you've told them, but they still are blinded. God has not opened their eyes at this point. We hope they will. Many people you know, and and God forbid, but it might even be you today, that you think you're doing all right. And you say, well, God's gonna accept me at the end because I've been good enough. That's why you need believers in your life that will lovingly, patiently, and clearly share the gospel truth with you. Christ is the end of striving for righteousness by works. He is the only savior for sinners. He saves by way of faith alone. John Owen exhorted unbelievers to beware of being deceived. He said this, without any real evidence, many assume they are Christians that they are on the right way to heaven, that they are partakers of the outward privileges of the gospel, such as hearing the word and participating in church. They compare themselves to others and judge themselves to be much better. Important warning, he says. Do not trust in these assumptions. They will eternally deceive your soul. Consider what it means to live and die without Christ. Without Christ, you are at enmity with God in a state of apostasy. You're under God's curse and eternal wrath. If we assume all is well with our souls, he says, we will not flee to Christ for refuge from eternal damnation. The healthy do not need a doctor. Only the sick come for healing. 
And then he said this, consider the love of Christ inviting you to come to him for life, deliverance, mercy, grace, peace, and eternal salvation. Consider the love of Christ. He is all-sufficient. Christ, the wisdom and power of God. Do you know Christ? What if you were to die today? Repent of your sins. If you're not a Christian, you can't pray right now unless God opens your heart and that you would want to be saved from from this perverse generation, as the Bible says. And, And the Bible says God has commanded all people to repent and turn from their sins. If that's you today, do it now. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And if it's you today hearing this, there's no excuse for your unbelief. You've heard the gospel. You must believe it. You must trust Christ. As we close, let me just say that this passage is so heartfelt. Paul's loving, true desire. It teaches us. It teaches the church. Share your passion with others. Share the burden of your heart. Pray in your groups. Pray with your friends. In your home, pray for unsaved family members and friends and neighbors and even those who might not be your friends yet. Pray for your saved family members. Pray for your unsaved family members. Pray for the saved and the lost. And and those two big roadblocks, the misguided zeal, the ignorant pride, Seek true knowledge, seek true righteousness. Don't be ignorant or willful against God. Understand what God's will is revealed in his word. Look to Christ. Don't listen to false teaching. Don't become deceived. Don't swerve from the truth. Remember Jesus is your life and he's given us his word. We're talking about Christ's total sufficiency. Think about Jesus. In Matthew chapter nine, he saw the crowds And he saw that they were downcast and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Here's Jesus who came to die for sinners. And in John chapter 17, here's Jesus praying for the church before people even get saved. And here's Jesus in John chapter 8 verse 32 saying, You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And here's Jesus in in Matthew 11 saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. That is an invitation not to run from him, but to run to him. Because when you stop at Christ, your life starts. Let's pray. Lord God, we want a great many things in life. We have many desires of our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that truly all we need is Christ. The name above all names, our life. We confess to you that we, too often, we turn aside to the world and the flesh and the devil. Too often we succumb to the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. When Jesus is saying, focus on me, just like he told Martha, Mary knew it. Look to the living word, Lord. May by, by your grace, may we look to the word made flesh, full of grace and truth, the anchor for our souls, our beautiful Savior, the bread of life, the living water, Alpha and Omega, bright morning star, the, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.